It's the first recorded murder in Brookfield, Connecticut, and the first attempt to use demonic possession as a defense in court. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was a 19-year-old with an entire life ahead of him, until he was allegedly possessed by multiple demons and committed a heinous murder. We're your hosts, Helen Allen and Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was, by all accounts, a good guy. Although he dropped out of high school before he was 19, he did so in order to get a stable job and support his mother. He worked as a tree surgeon, which just means that he was responsible for trees that fell, but I love that title. Um, And he even saved up money to buy her a car so that she wouldn't have to walk to and from work. Yeah, he was seemingly very normal. He met his girlfriend, Debbie Glatzel, who was 26 at the time. Yeah, it's a little weird, the age difference, but they fell in love and... It is what it is. It was a different time. Yeah. Yeah. So the two got very serious very quickly and went to move in together to this like rental property. Um, Debbie Glatzel had a family who was pretty involved in the relationship. They liked being around her and Arnie. And basically like they were all on their way to becoming like a very happy and cohesive family. But then Debbie's brother David starts experiencing some really weird things. And mind you, all the things that come next are from the accounts of people involved. So you can take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. And I guess the rental property they had had to be cleared out. And there was this like waterbed in it that just had to be removed. But David went with Debbie and Arnie to clean it up. They supposedly heard weird noises from the attic. And David claims that an old man appeared pushing and terrifying him. And he describes this old man as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Yeah, so like at this... I don't know why I just yelled that. I'm <laughs> screamed. Yeah, so at this point, Debbie and Arnie are like, okay, dude, you just like don't want to clean. <laughs> and although like no. everyone in the family did allegedly hear um, the weird noises from the attic, none of them ever saw the old man that David saw. After this, David started experiencing night terrors. He woke up one night screaming about, quote, a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. Apparently, this beast man told David to beware. And mind you, I'm not recounting this stuff as fact or not fact. I'm just, like, laying out the groundwork for the case that we have in front of us. Like, I think it would really be doing this case a disservice if we embed our opinion in it too much. So for the sake of retelling it, right, um, we're just going to lay out everything that we know and discuss what we think afterward. Yeah, exactly. So this beast man allegedly promised David that it would take his soul and scratches and bruises begin to appear on his body when he slept. The beast man also began appearing to him as an old man with like a white beard dressed in a flannel shirt and jeans. So the family is like, we need Jesus. We need That's someone just like to come. A regular Connecticut man. No, yeah. So standard attire for Connecticut is a guy with a white beard and a flannel shirt and jeans. But the family is like, we need Jesus. We need the Lord. So they turn to priests. And Debbie asks Arnie if he can stay with them for a while until David gets back on track. 
So the instances start to become more and more crazy. David starts speaking in otherworldly tones and quotes Paradise Lost, which I don't know about you, but I wasn't quoting that 11 years old, let alone speaking. (laughs) uh, Yeah, Yeah. let alone speaking, (laughs) like just so terrified of everything. But on top of that being out of the norm for David, he wasn't even the type to watch scary movies or anything like that. So everyone was a little put off about how creative this all seemed like he wouldn't have watched anything to inspire this type of actions. You know what I mean? Definitely. So they were kind of leading them to fully trust in it and saying this is something that is otherworldly. And after these instances, David's whole demeanor changes. And during the night, the family would take shifts over like who would stay up and watch him because he would literally wake up every 30 minutes and have seizures sometimes. Right. And the priests did end up like blessing the house, but nothing really came of it and nothing changed. So the family just was like terrified and they eventually just stopped renting it. Um, David's visions, however, did not get better. So this is when the family turns to demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. You might know them from the famous Conjuring movies. Sounds um, familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard of that little indie movie, yeah. Underground. Maybe something that ever came up. <laughs> Twelve days after the incident, uh, the Warrens came to evaluate David. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, indicating to her that there was definitely something evil present. Yeah, black mist would definitely be an indicator of that. But (laughs) Debbie and her mom tell the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks appeared on his neck afterwards. Now, it's kind of unclear what happens next. The Diocese of Bridgeport admits that they did investigate the Glatzel case, but they have never spoken to them more than that. The Warrens claim that they, along with four other priests, held three lesser exorcisms after a prognosis to free David from the hold of not one, not even two, 43 demons. And Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. I mean, this is a lot. I had to look up what precognition is, by the way. Um, So just for anybody who doesn't know, it basically means being able to tell the future with, like, certainty. Yeah. Um, According to the Hartford Current, the Warrens told police that during one of these exorcisms, Arnie allegedly leapt up and cried to the demon, quote, come into me, I'll fight you, come into me, unquote. And I'm no demonologist, but I feel like, that's not really what you're supposed to say um, yeah. or do during an exorcism because, I don't know, it might make one of the alleged 43 demons a little bit mad. Yeah, and, you know, maybe just be a little cautious when you're, like, allegedly surrounded by these 43 demons. Like, if he really believed in them, wouldn't he be, like, scared just yeah, a little I, bit? Yeah, I don't know. Instead of trying to play martyr and right. be like, come to me. This is unrelated, honestly, but I just need to point it out because I was like, what in the world is this difference in reportings here but when i was looking into the case the hartford current says that arnie said and like this is a quote that they use come into me i'll fight you come into me like i said but the new york times says that the quote is come into me leave the little lad alone (laughs) (laughs) which like to me in my mind just picture like i just picture him doing a little irish jig tipping his hat and it you just, know. like, all this just really pissed off the demons then. Yeah, like, that's what did it. Yeah, and you know, to this day, if you do that three times in a mirror, you're just going to be possessed by 43 demons. Yeah, here it's... at the chalk line, we are here to deliver the hard-hitting truth. 
So in November, so November of 1980 starts and David seems totally fine. He would see doctors and psychiatrists and they all said that he appeared very normal. He had a slight learning disability and trouble sleeping, but nothing besides that. Honestly, I wonder how extreme or unknown this possible learning disability could really be. Because you have to think like it was the 1980s and we know so much more about disability now than we did then. And like we'll continue to find out more as time goes on. So I think it would be cool to find out um, if they were if they were certain about his diagnosis or if there was some room for maybe like learning about it further before drawing conclusions. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, that's like such a good point, too, because we're always like obviously growing with society and learning more about people and their psyche and mental health. So it's so interesting that you like brought that up because there can be like so many cases where, you know, we thought it was one thing, but we just don't have enough knowledge to know Mm -hmm. if it's something more, if it's more serious. And there's just so many room for questions that we never really get to hear David's side of the story, probably because he was a minor at the time. And I'm assuming the family just didn't let him speak up. Right. Or like he's never really like directly involved in any, like legal things so it's not like the police would like have a right to question him if the family doesn't want them to like that's it you know it's just a no he's a little kid true so yeah there are just so many unanswered questions here because the only accounts really are from the immediate family and the warrens but we don't really hear much more about david after this this is when stuff sort of starts to shift to focusing on arnie After this stuff with David is all over, the Warrens call the Brookfield police and tell them to, quote, keep an eye out for Arnie. Arnie and Debbie then move into an apartment in Brookfield above a dog groomer. Debbie also ends up getting a job at this groomer, and her boss uh, at the groomer is actually also her landlord, since it's like the same building. He just owns both. And according to Debbie, this is around the time where Arnie starts experiencing possession. At some point, Arnie allegedly investigated a well in the same area where David claimed to have his first encounter with the presence. And the Warrens had warned Arnie not to go back to the well, but obviously he does it anyway. And I guess he said it was to see if the demons truly took over his body after he had taunted them. He later claims that he saw a demon hiding within the well and that demon began possessing him. Debbie says that Arnie would go into these, like, trances where he would growl at nothing and claim to see the beast man. However, when Arnie would come out of these trances, he would, like, not remember any of it. At one point, he allegedly put his fist through a chest of drawers, growling like an animal, and then just, like, forgot it happened entirely. Yeah, and then also the Discovery Channel episode on this case... Like, a few days after Arnie egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked viciously by the demon, which he allegedly, like, took control of his car and forced it into a tree. But Arnie walked away from it unharmed, and I just have no idea how. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So let's go into the day that everything goes down. February 16th, 1981. Arnie calls out sick from his job at Wright Tree Service for no apparent reason. Like, he wasn't sick that day by any means. Just a bold-faced lie. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of going to work, he decided to spend the day at Debbie's work, the kennel beneath their apartment. So, that day, it was him, his younger 15-year-old sister, Wanda, and Debbie's 9-year-old cousin, Mary. Around lunchtime, Alan Bono, the kennel owner and their landlord, 
shows up and offers to go buy them lunch. So they're all like, sure, yeah, yeah. And they go to this local bar and spend some time there. And most accounts will say that both Alan and Arnie were drinking pretty heavily. Yeah, and eventually they leave the bar and return back home. Alan, who is still with them, is said to be intoxicated at this point and visibly agitated. According to the police, they think that he said something about Debbie that rubbed Arnie the wrong way, and the room became really tense. Debbie instructs everyone to leave, and as Mary is leaving, Alan grabs her, and this just sets Arnie off, and he orders Alan to release Mary, like, immediately. Wanda recounts that she ran for the car while Debbie tried to mitigate the situation and get in between the two. She tries to pull Arnie away, but it doesn't work. Arnie was said to be growling like an animal and drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Alan repeatedly. Alan Bono died several hours later after after suffering from four or five huge wounds, mostly to his chest area. One of the wounds, however, was wedged into his stomach and drawn all the way up to the base of his heart. Arnie had left the scene at this point, but was arrested about an hour later after being found two blocks away from the scene of the crime. And after a few months later, Arnie would go on trial, represented by Martin Manila. And before Johnson was indicted on March 19, 1981, Manila offered to take on this case for free. So Manila's plan was to pursue a demon possession defense, and it literally shook everyone in the media. Not kidding. No, for real. People traveled far and wide to watch the demon possession. But even though Manella cited two British cases, the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, was just like not having it. He was like, yeah, I'm not here to tell you if demonic possession's real or not real, but I am here to tell you it's not going to fly in my courtroom. Manella tried to have Callahan recuse himself, but Callahan refused. Um, basically he said like he knows it's not a legal defense and considers the evidence of it irrelevant unprovable and needlessly confusing to a jury to which manila then says if courts have dealt with the existence of god then they have to deal with the existence of the devil and he drops a mic that's what they say (laughs) As jury selection was set to begin in late October, reporters and believers in the supernatural flocked to Danbury for what was dubbed the demon murder trial. Danbury is like a nearby town of Brookfield. Um, The local Hilton Hotel was completely booked for nights, and people worried that the courtroom, which could only hold 70 people packed in shoulder to shoulder, wouldn't be big enough. And then Judge Callahan officially refused the tactic, saying if it couldn't be scientifically proven, then it's a no-go. So Manila is like, I guess I'll have to argue self-defense. And this is when the media gets bored and everyone just leaves. They completely peace out and they don't come back. They're like, there's no demons. I'm over it. So despite Callahan's banning of the demon defense, Manila attempted to put four priests on the stand. Callahan wouldn't allow it, though. So the current reported Ed Warren was relegated to being a character witness, and he took the stand for only a few minutes, saying that Johnson was quiet and considerate, and that it was very hard to believe he could have murdered anyone. And then he reluctantly stepped down. Yeah, like, self-defense is several stab wounds against an unarmed man? I don't know. Nonetheless... The jury found Johnson guilty of first-degree manslaughter on November 24th, 1981. And although Johnson received the maximum sentence of 10 to 20 years, 
On December 18, 1981, he was released for good behavior after just serving over four years at the Connecticut Correctional Institute, and that was in Summers. While in prison, Johnson married Debbie, received a high school degree, and earned several other educational certificates and took a number of college courses. Um, According to Hans Fielman, chief of parole for the State Corrections Department, he said that Arnie was noted to be an exemplary inmate whose mental condition was carefully examined, and they found, like, no negative factors. They're like, this guy's completely fine, and now him and Debbie have kids and grandkids. Yeah, which is weird for someone who was allegedly possessed by the devil, no? No, of course. Like, like you're just fine. I mean, call me crazy, and I'm not trying to stereotype victims of demonic possession, um, but it just seems like a big jump to go from being a crazed, possessed killer to a model inmate. Fully, fully. Um, like, does the devil not operate in prison? Um, <laughs> did he get bored? I... As far as we know, Arnie never had an exorcism. So, like, let's unpack why this might not be a case of demonic possession. Please. Like, I know at least for me personally, I grew up very religious, but I do have a very open mind and I don't like to discount anything, not ruling anything out. And I do believe in God and the devil and exorcisms in some cases. And As for this case, I'm just not buying it at all. Prosecutors, who had revealed very little about their case against Johnson, while Manila kept the focus on the devil, said another type of demon played a role in the case. Alcohol. (laughs) You know, that setup was so good. (laughs) Alcohol. The next demon was alcohol. Mm -hmm. No, seriously. Like, I mean... That is exactly how I think things went down, and here's why. At the trial, the waitress that actually served them at the bar the day of the murder said that she served the two men three carafes of wine that day, leading me to believe that Arnie was heavily intoxicated, too. Also, when the ambulance pulled up, the driver testified in court that he heard Debbie say to her father, Oh, Daddy, he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's been drinking. Right, which, like, okay... And then another thing that I can't stop thinking about, remember that car accident that he got into that allegedly the demon drove his car into a tree? Yeah, and he was like completely fine. Yeah. Well, here's what I was thinking. And this is not backed up by any fact. It's just some stuff that I I considered while researching the case. Um, When you get into a car accident and like you see the car coming to hit you and your body tenses up, you're more likely to break bones and get severely hurt because of your body tensing up like that. So, like, this is why a lot of drunk drivers would be the one to walk away unharmed from the scene because their body was loose while, like, the sober victim tensed up. So the fact that Arnie did walk away from that scene unharmed made me immediately consider the fact that it could have been a case of drunk driving. And it's also, like, obviously possible that all the times he couldn't recall his judgment was just, like, or just judgment or memory was just, like, clouded by alcohol, you know? I really didn't even consider that but you make some that's a really good point I didn't even know that and not to mention the fact that Arnie was said to have previous run-ins with the police like I wonder if that was for other drunk incidents but unfortunately we couldn't find anything detailing exactly what those run-ins were for right and it makes you think that like it could have just been like drunk incidents that seem harmless and like they just didn't get on his record because you know the police were like oh he's just some drunk idiot like whatever you know what I mean (laughs) um 
And even just like the slamming his fist into the drawers and not remembering, like that just sounds to me like something that could have been done in like a drunk rage. Like, I don't know. There's obviously just like a lot of angles to consider here, but obviously we're here to consider them. Yeah. And that seems like the most plausible one in my eyes, honestly. So let's fast forward to 2009 and Carl Glatzel Jr., David's brother, wants to sue Lorraine and Gerald Brittle, which was he, he was the author of The Devil in Connecticut, and he wants to sue them for financial damages. He claims that the book that they wrote was filled with lies about the demonic possession and that Lorraine and her husband made it up. Carl goes on to say that many incidents described in the book were, quote, complete lies and that he was made to appear a villain because he was the one being the sane voice and he knew the story was false from the beginning. And he even attests to his brother's suffering from a mental illness that he never recovered from. I mean, so that seems like another explanation for all this. Right. Yeah, like another angle that wasn't really thoroughly looked at, it seems. Yeah. And so now fast forward to 2021, and the third Conjuring movie is in the works. So if the demonic possession theory is anything, it's good entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, this case was actually even made into an 80s movie that stars Kevin Bacon, too. So if you're looking for, like, a nice flick this weekend, it's called The Demon Murder Case, and it was made for TV. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod and Twitter at the Chalkline Pod. And be sure to check out our website. The link is in the Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story.